Welcome to episode two of the Media Sport podcast series, which is available on both Apple iTunes and SoundCloud. I want to start by thanking the many listeners from around the world, and in particular the UK, US, Australia and China, who downloaded the first episode. In the last episode, I spoke to Andy Meyer from the Creative Futures Institute, who, at the time of our discussion, was attending the Youth Olympics in Nanjing, China. Today we move our attention to another major international sports event, the recently completed Commonwealth Games in Glasgow, Scotland. I'm your host, Brett Hutchins, an Australian Research Council Future Fellow in the School of Media, Film and Journalism at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. In this episode, I'm pleased to be joined via Skype by Raymond Boyle in Glasgow. Raymond is Professor of Communications and Deputy Director of the Centre for Cultural Policy Research at the University of Glasgow, as well as an editor of the leading international media studies journal, Media, Culture and Society. He's written several books that I recommend to listeners, including The Television Entrepreneurs, Social Change and Public Understanding of Business, Sports Journalism, Context and Issues, and a co-authored book with Richard Haynes played a major role in the development of my thinking about the relationship between sports media and network digital technology, titled Football in the New Media Age. Raymond, thanks for joining me. No problem. Great to, to talk to you, Brett. As a way of starting our conversation, and for the benefit of listeners living in countries outside the former Commonwealth, could you explain what the Commonwealth Games are? and then offer some reflections on the significance of the 2014 Commonwealth Games for Glasgow. Yeah, I mean, the Commonwealth Games has um, changed significantly over the years, um, and for many years was um, uh, certainly very subsidiary to something like the Olympics and was um, bound up with um, the remnants of the British Empire uh, and those countries associated with it. Um, and was really much a manifestation of uh, of those of, of games, uh, the legacy of which was the relationship with the with the empire. Uh, in more recent times, really probably only in the last ten or fifteen, maybe twenty years, um, the games have become slightly more high profile. Partly as a result, I think, of the growth of cities uh, viewing staging of major um, sporting events as being an important part in raising their profile. Um, the economic aspects to it, uh, and so on and so forth. And as a result of that, I think the Commonwealth Games have become slightly more important, certainly in the in the broad sporting calendar. Um, they're still primarily of interest, as indeed are a lot of sporting events, to those countries who have a direct impact or direct relationship with them. Um, but they've become much, I would argue, they've mutated much more into a mainstream a multi-event, multi-sport event, um, with a rather strange list of countries that contribute to them. Um, but actually, the profile and media coverage has been around the quality—excuse me—the quality of the sports and the quality of the event. So I think they've moved away from their original kind of uh, their, their original origins uh, um, and are, are seen now much more as a rather uh, slightly left field to some extent, given the kind of composition of of, uh, of countries, but a multi-event sports event, which in some sports is actually highly competitive, because actually a number of the countries, such as Australia, Canada, obviously England, Scotland, etc., um, have athletes uh, who are who are actually world-class athletes. So in some certain events, it actually is a, a high-class. 
uh, sports events. In others, it, it is much less so. But it is seen kind of often quoted as the friendly games or the games that are in some shape or form, not trying to hate the Olympics, but, but on a much smaller scale. But I think they've become more important for those cities that are hosting them because they are just another uh, part of the portfolio of events that cities look to as a way of kind of increasing their profile. Mm. And what was the feeling in Glasgow in the lead up to the Games? I mean, when there's often this thing around the amount of money spent, a certain degree of cynicism that then subsides once an event begins and people start to enjoy the sport. Did you see that pattern in Glasgow or is it a bit different? Uh, no, actually, I think it was probably broadly similar. I think there was probably less um, opposition uh, in the run-up to the Games, um, partly because... Um, a lot of the infrastructure was in place to some extent. There was still substantial investment um, um, in both new structures and updating structures. Um, I mean, for example, the National Football Stadium, Hampden Park, became the athletic stadium, and they raised, uh, they, they actually put in the running track, uh, raising the whole surface by a number of uh, by uh, by a number of inches. And actually, I had colleagues from the US who were fascinated by the technology they had used to convert the stadium because they, 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 they had seen this as a potential for converting certain stadia uh, in North America into athletic stadium and then reconverting them back in a way which actually was much cheaper than actually building new new stadiums. So there was an element of um, quite kind of cutting-edge technology in the transformation. Um, but again, you know, it's important to recognise these are city events um, and so Glasgow has a very strong sense of its own identity. And while there will always be issues about cost, etc., and benefits, there was a there was a clear sense of kind of rallying around. This was going to be a, an event which was going to um, be good for the city uh, in that sense. And as with previous patterns, once the thing kicks in, then actually. Um, you know, the descent certainly subsides to some extent and people kind of rally around. And then when they actually see that the event is actually um, bringing people out onto the streets and is actually transforming the kind of the, the city centre culture and the culture around the, the, the city, um, then, you know, a lot of that, that, that debate gets parked for, for a later time, a later date. Mm. And what's been the aftermath like? I mean, is there a sense that the Games have had a, a positive legacy for Glasgow? I mean, I know it's still very close to them, but, um, I mean, they seem very quite, successful. Yeah, I mean, it's quite comp it's quite complicated in one sense because, of course, we have uh, another event taking place uh, tomorrow, which, of course, is the, um, for those who don't know, is the referendum, which is a referendum about whether Scotland should become an independent state. Um, and actually separate from the United Kingdom with all the political ramifications that has for uh, for people living in Scotland, but also throughout the United Kingdom. So there's a way in which once the Commonwealth Games, um, which was perceived, I think, certainly internally as being successful, not in least not least part helped by particularly in the first week um, some outstanding weather, which is not uh, always associated with this part of the this part of the hemisphere um, and that certainly aided the, the kind of feel-good factor that went around it Not, and, and also the, the organisational side of it, there was one or two glicks about some transport issues but I spoke with quite senior people uh, in the organising committee 
um, who had a lot of experience at these type of events, and, and they felt this was a way in a far the best event they'd been involved in in terms of staging a multi uh, a multi sports event uh, over a relatively short period of time, uh, and I think that aided to the kind of feel the feel good factor. So in terms of the legacy, I think once the Commonwealth Games has got out of the way, we've been completely bombarded with debates around the referendum, and fundamentally that has squeezed out all other all other news and all other kind of discussion. Mm. Um, we've been having the referendum debate in Scotland for two two years, but the rest of the United Kingdom has kind of woken up in the last you know two or three weeks or four or five weeks to this, um, and there simply has it's it's kind of sucked all the oxygen if you like out of the news media for discussions about other things. So I think in terms of legacy, um, I really think it'll be later in the year when um, there will be some. You know, some much more reflection on, on how it's actually going to kind of play out within the, particularly within Glasgow City Council. I can't help but ask, I mean, given it is the eve of the referendum, what, what is, what's your feeling about this at the moment? It's a particularly acute moment for, for Scott, the Scottish. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I, I mean, all the opinion polls indicate that if I hear the term knife edge mentioned again, I mean, they're running out of cliches in terms of. <laughs> Legal journalists are running out of cliches about how, and of course, lots of sporting analogies. Um, I did, I did uh, email a colleague and said that um, if it does end up 50-50, whether they'll actually toss a coin about, or how, you know, how will we actually go? Will we have a penalty shootout between uh, the leader of the yes campaign and the leader of the, the no campaign? Um, so yes, no, it, it's it's certainly galvanised. Um, it's galvanised public and political opinion. Um, they are predicting a potential turnout of, of up up to 80%. I mean, 4.2 million people have registered to vote in a population of 5 million. Mm. Um, and in sort of Scottish or UK election terms, this is unprecedented. So even even sort of um, conservatively, you're talking about uh, a turnout of uh, well over 70, possibly is over 80%. So a lot of people who have never voted before will be voting, um, and so it has galvanised a lot of a lot of thinking. I think in the last couple of weeks, to be honest, the debate has become less of a debate, and we are now into the kind of the political moment where people are simply uh, shouting across the street at each other in, in terms of, of the different positions. But I think up until that point, over the last two years, I think it's had a it's had a very strong uh, impact on kind of democratising political discussion. And the Commonwealth Games has been bundled into that and there was a lot of debate about whether the Commonwealth Games would act as a, a driver to help the, the, the Yes campaign who are wanting a separate uh, Scottish state. Um, I'm not sure that it had... I think it was quite marginal in that sense. I think what it did galvanise and did play part of a process was the notion of engagement and the notion of people getting involved in an event through their local communities, um, and that being translated into into the political arena in the referendum debate. Uh, I mean, the characteristic of the referendum debate has been the way in which community organisations, uh, um, from from local town halls to community groups, have been engaged in a way which they simply have never been engaged in my lifetime in mm. political discussion. And I think the Commonwealth Games didn't create that. It existed before that, but the Commonwealth Games kind of both benefited from that 
uh, and help to kind of reinforce the notion that actually, um, you know, you can actually get get actively engaged uh, 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 in kind of community events. Uh, and I think so. Uh, indirectly, I think the, the Commonwealth Games were important, but perhaps not in the way that some of the mainstream politicians thought they might be. Yeah, it's a really interesting time in Scotland's history this year. What about what research activities were you involved in during the, the games? I mean, I'm assuming the University of Glasgow um, had a, had a bit going on. Yeah, well, there was a number of events. I was involved in. Um, we had a, a number of public discussions, which were actually um, broadcast um, by the BBC um, radio uh, programs about the role of sport um, in. Um, society and I was involved in a, in a debate about um, looking at why certain sport, why certain nations seemingly are better at some sports than others and um, we had a number of experts talking and, and I was one I was talking about the role that the media play and that and that was a public uh, public uh, uh, event free public event which we had you know we had 150 people attending um, and then was picked up on and uh, broadcast with the BBC radio uh, uh, sports program so there was a lot of those kind of public events in addition I was involved in the project which was also trying to look at how Glasgow was was represented or covered both in the run-up to the games during the games and subsequently after uh, the games and trying to kind of uh, reach out in a slightly more qualitative sense um, to kind of capture some of those kind of uh, issues of representation, particularly around the city. I'm always fascinated by both things like the Commonwealth Games and the Olympics, the tensions between the cities and the country, because they remain city events. But of course, in the Scottish context here, Glasgow was city council was very involved in the events, but the Scottish government was equally very keen on the events, not least because of seeing it in the run up to the the run up to the referendum the importance of the event being successful and being well organized and well run you can imagine if it had been a, an organizational disaster the message that that would have potentially sent out in terms of well if you can't organize the games how the heck do you propose to organize yourself as a as an independent state um so there was all so those kind of issues and tensions i think were kind of interesting uh, uh, as well um, but that project has run and also there was a an event staged um, which kind of brought together kind of policy thinkers and policy shapers looking at sport as persuasion and this kind of growing area which I think is interesting which is the notion of sport as some sort of either soft power or the kind of usage of sport and, and I suppose what we would term cultural diplomacy or the ways in which uh, countries uh, attempt to represent or influence uh, other countries not necessarily through direct, absolute economic and political engagement, but also through the, the usage of the use of sport, uh, and that was an interesting kind of Chatham House Rules conference. But we had people coming from quite senior positions within the Commonwealth um, talking about the importance for many of the smaller Commonwealth countries of things like the games and the way that it allowed them a foothold into a broad network and and, and the notion of a network, which is a sporting network, but also then potentially has other uh, benefits, both culturally and in some cases economically, for particularly for smaller countries. So that was a very interesting kind of uh, forum to be to be part of. So there's a lot of discussion. In fact, many of us had to go and lie in a darkened room 
for a couple of days after the game <laughs> finished. Um, at least, as I said, I think I said to another colleague, unlike yourselves, uh, for example, in Australia, with whoever's experienced in two thousand, the Sydney games, for example, that. I mean, the, 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 the nice thing about the Commonwealth Games was they actually lasted about 11 days or 12 days, and that was kind of, if you felt after that you'd feasted, and that was, it was a bit like sort of an extended Christmas and you were ready to kind of lie down. The thought of it being lasting for a month in, for example, like an Olympics or a, or a, or a World Cup, um, I simply, I don't think I could have handled that. And was, <laughs> so in that sense, I was, I was quite happy when they came to a close on the, after about 12 days. And Matt, what's your early? I mean, I realise the project's ongoing, but what are your early impressions of the ways that Glasgow was represented, both, I suppose, within back to the Scottish people, but also beyond Scotland? I think uh, um, it kind of reinforced some of the assumptions that one would have had. For example, which is that if your if your country or your national media market, for want of a better phrase, doesn't have a direct engagement involvement in the sporting event they have a slightly different take on it and either it becomes relatively invisible um, or it becomes high profile for certain sort of um, reasons normally around some sort of scandal in the sports context normally around drugs etc and the Commonwealth Games were pretty scandal free in that in that context yeah. so the you know when you're within the bubble of an event you think the world is watching but in reality the world is always watching very selectively and some parts of the world are much more interested than others and in other parts you're, you're actually still invisible so I think that was reflected uh, in a lot of the the kind of uh, the discourses that, that came through um, interestingly those countries that had resource to sit, particularly to send as it were journalists to witness and be engaged in it you know the, the reporting back was always a mixture of the sporting and the kind of uh, I suppose what we would call the colour features, which we were, were about the city, and some of those are always, you know, in some cases are quite amusing, um, but generally they seem to kind of be be pretty positive about the city, and many people came with a particular perception and image of the city, uh, and went away with another. I think the, the the Commonwealth Games, they were quite clever in the way they marketed the city. They marketed the city around the people, and I I I'm not aware of any other major sports events that's done that. Uh, they've tended to market it around, you know, something to do with the iconic nature of either the architecture, the landscape, the position, or whatever it would be. But Glasgow kind of set all that aside and basically said, what makes Glasgow different is the people. And they marketed it around the people and the experience they would have there. They didn't market it around any, you know, any, any kind of other areas of it, even to the extent that the slogan was people make Glasgow, which has become the, the Glasgow City Council's marketing slogan. And I thought that was kind of interesting, and, and certainly in the material that I've seen that's come through, that's been reflected in the, in the, the people who sent, the organisations that sent journalists here had a great experience, had a good experience, positive experience, where people were picking things up second and third hand, um, it was much more kind of a mixture of stereotypes and some kind of second-hand material coming through about the, the, the on-the-ground experience. And in other parts, it's just invisible, you know, the invisibility of it, which again, I think is quite sobering and, and is worth restating because there is this kind of hype that often goes with major events that indicate that the world is watching, as it were. And I think it's often good to remind ourselves that actually 
the world quite often has more important things to be getting on with. You've um, obviously written an enormous amount about sports news and journalism. I mean, and you spent a lot of time in and around the games. Was there anything you particularly noticed about the sorts of sports news and journalism, either in terms of the types of stories, the technologies, the practices, things like that? I was uh, um, I was struck by the the to some extent the 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 importance of liveness uh, um, and so for example every every single event um, you had you had the potential to access it uh, live um, through uh, through television or through the web um, and what struck me as somebody who also attended quite a lot of the events was of course the kind of the increasing ubiquitous natures of the smartphone so that people were actually accessing and engaging in content both at the stadium but also wanting to have that experience of being kept up to speed uh, um, uh, on uh, events. Um, the other thing which struck me about it was the complexities of trying to cover a multi-sport event you know, in, in a relatively short space of time. And I think that... And this might be a slight paradox. I think the kind of the highlight package, or the kind of the roundup package, still actually has a real value. I mean, we're continually told. I think the last figure I, I was either quoted or, or saw was ninety-seven percent of the value of of a lot of sports rights is in the live content, um, the linear rights, and the kind of non-linear rights are important. But you know what? In the bigger package for a lot of events, they're they're, they're marginal. But actually, those non-linear uh, rights are actually incredibly important. And uh, and and the viewing figures that they had for, for example, programs they built around at the end of the days, games catch-up days, um, the BBC through significant resource at it, they they bundled in, they used different types of television formats, so they mixed sports with chat shows, bringing in athletes who'd won medals that day into their studios, which they which they built and extended along the Clyde, the Pacific Key here in Glasgow. They had a great iconic backdrop to, to, to their studios. Um, so I was struck by the changing nature of the way that fans are consuming sport. They want both the live, as in I am at the event, but also the mediated live events in terms of how, how, how it's been talked about, how it's been discussed, how it's been made sense of. But also that we shouldn't underestimate the importance of those kind of non-linear moments where almost it's kind of, it's, it's at the end of the day, the sitting down, um, and I know that certainly for, for my kids, for example, you know, uh, that was an important time as well, whether it was the, it was the catch-up, particularly in a multi-sport event, where naturally you will have more interest in certain sports, but actually it's kind of interesting to know what, what, what went on across the range. So uh, in that sense, um, it was interesting. And also just the, 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 the significant resource that was required to cover it. I mean, the BBC's coverage... Um, was really a significant journalistic investment compared to even how they covered the games 15 or 20 years ago. And, and people said that to me, that, that actually, um, journalistically, and the, the numbers of people involved, it was, was a major, major, uh, major, major uh, investment, um, which, in one sense, is, naturally, is natural enough, but also you know, indicates the commitment that's needed to host these or to cover these events, which was raised... Uh, just on another issue, I mean, a senior 
organising person spoke to me and they, they mentioned that they wondered whether this was about as big as the Commonwealth Games should really get um, and that there becomes a kind of a tipping point where then it, it, it kind of uh, mutates into something else and there was a kind of feeling that because there's always pressure as there is in the Olympics to add new sports, to, to have additional sports and there's lots of lobbying goes on for sports wanting to be part of it because they see it as an important shop window. Um, but there's a, there was a kind of a sense to which this is about as big as you can do it, uh, to do it justice also in terms of the coverage that, that it gets. So a lot of kind of interesting uh, interesting kind of um, reflections from those covering the, the, the event as well. Okay, and was there any problems with, um, you know, you talk about problems of during the staging of an event, but it, with the increasing use of smartphones in particular, things like network connectivity, traffic loads, slowing down the use of these things. Was there any coverage or publicity around that or was it relatively smooth? It seemed to be rel relatively smooth and I think they had learned an awful lot from um, from, the, from the London Olympics uh, in 2012 and indeed a lot of the kind of IT, particularly, I mean both the BBC but also a lot of the kind of IT support networks and systems uh, uh, I spoke to a number of people who had also worked at London 2012 who were now working on the Commonwealth Games. So there was a way in which there was an awful lot of knowledge sharing and um, and um, I certainly wasn't aware, either practically in my own experience or from speaking with people around it, that there was any significant kind of technological hitches in that sense. And, and in that sense, it was probably the smoothest game. The one technical, or the one issue there was um, for, for one of the days was a problem with um, uh, bussing people in because of um, they, they were closing off various sections of the city and so that you would park up somewhere out with the city and you would be bussed in to the event and there was again a problem. I think part, to some extent it seems to be they were actually uh, surprised by the volume of people who were wanting to do that. and So those kind of logistic problems which mm. is you're trying to move people about uh, in a very short space of time, um, there was an element of that, but that then seemed to have been addressed. What was interesting was that the sense I got, for example, at the end of each day, the, um, you received an email from the, the Commonwealth Games kind of, uh, organising people who you got your tickets through, who were actually doing a kind of a survey of your experience of the day and wanting to look at uh, any issues or problems you had. And, and, and there was a sense to which they were using particularly social media as a kind of an early indicator of perhaps problems and then seeking to address them. And I know that was something they were wanting to do as a way of trying to very quickly address any issues or problem sections that might have come up. So again, that was kind of interesting as a, as a kind of a, a managerial or event management technique that... Um, allowed a much faster response potentially than we might have had in sort of uh, previous games. Yeah, it's an interesting idea that you're sort of using Twitter and so on as a as part of managing the games as well as, I'm assuming, a news source for events during the games as well as athletes speaking out and so on. Yeah, yeah, as well as using it as a news feed, as a discussion forum, they were also using it to monitor. Uh, but monitor in the sense of, of, you know, if there were clearly issues coming through which you know you know if you're with a couple of hundred fans or a couple of thousand fans who can't get to an event and you take on to twitter it's it, it very quickly gets picked up and it's very quickly quite obvious and they, they were using that but again the core to that is investment i mean 
and you know that yourself that there's a sometimes a perception that this is a kind of a cheap way of kind of managing events etc and in fact you know to do it properly it requires dedicated resource and quite often that resource is people uh, and I think that's and of course that's where the volunteering plays a role in these events um, but I think again the games benefited from um, you know having that capacity to to actually not just have systems in place to to deal with some of these issues, but actually actually have had them adequately staffed and resourced. Fascinating. And taking a step back from the games for a moment, I mean, could you just describe your intellectual trajectory and disciplinary influence? How have you come to be, you know, uh, someone who, who who speaks and writes a lot about sport and media? Well, uh, many many years ago now. <laughs> Um, my first degree was in media and um, and history, actually. So I've always kind of had that interest in, I suppose, the long view to some extent, or placing things within historical context, mm. um, which we, particularly in the digital context, it's very easy to lose. You know, there's a sense to which you know the world started in 1995 or 1996 in terms of kind of internet and in terms of. And that there isn't actually a history before that which influences and shapes particularly kind of patterns of media sport and consumption. But uh, media history was my background, and, and I had an interest. I always had an interest in sport, both as a fan as somebody who who played at an amateur level, um, and um, was fortunate enough to develop my undergraduate dissertation work around media and sport, and was also fortunate enough to be. I don't know, naive enough to think that you could write to the assistant head of sport at the BBC as a as a as an undergraduate student, and that's I'd say right. I, I you know, pre-email for those who are listening. You actually had the carbon-based data retrieval system, or as paper as we call it, and you actually went out, bought a stamp, and actually posted a letter to to a number of high-profile journalists and and uh, senior people at the BBC involved in sports coverage asking if they would speak to me and then to be amazed by them all responding and saying they would be happy to speak to me. And that was really both a, a revelation in terms of um, a, a, method, a methodological revelation in terms of actually, you know, the gap there was in literature. I was trying to read about sports and TV in the late 80s, mid 80s, uh, and there was very little to read about it. And then I thought, well, why don't I go and speak to some of the people that are at the front end and... Um, and, and, you know, that was, and, and they were incredibly generous at the time. And I've never forgotten that, both as somebody who, I'm sure, like yourself and other colleagues, gets quite a lot of requests to speak to people, uh, graduates and others, about things. I've never forgotten the courtesy that was shown to me. So a number of life lessons came quite early on. And then as I've evolved, um, the, I've been fortunate, as indeed, you know, somebody like yourself has been that, that we're in an area that's continually evolving and developing. Mm. Um, so sport has often been at that kind of forefront of that intersection between technological change, but also organisational, political, cultural change uh, in terms of kind of genres of, 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 of media output. And so in that sense, I've never had to make the case about why I'm interested or researching in this area. It's kind of the case has always now been made for me. Uh, uh, because of those changes and over the years journalism has been an area I've always been interested in uh, and again that's 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 um, that's evolved uh, as well and of course we now have a plethora of influence in, in, in writing about the area which wasn't there initially mm. so you know a couple of key people writing even out of Australia and 
and, and, and people like Gary Winnell, who was writing there, um, very much shaped and influenced my interests around the political economy of sport, but also the kind of cultural representations of sport and the, the relationship of sports to identity, and trying to, where possible, pull those two together, because at one point were often seen as distinct and different, and didn't mm. really address or speak to each other. And I know Gary's work was one of the first where he tried to actually say there is actually a relationship between the political economies of media and sport and those issues of representations and identity and the audience. And in, in that sense, those broad areas have remained my guiding kind of interests. But of course, within that, there has been all sorts of shifts in, in, in the sort of content and the debate, which mean that you can keep those broad interests, but actually... Uh, the area itself is continually evolving and developing in interesting ways. Mm. And also, Nate, you're the principal investigator on a project titled Copyright Football and the Europe and European Media Right. What's what's that project involved? Uh, basically, that project's involved with a, a consortium which the centre I'm in is part of, which is called Create, um, and they are a, a, a multi-university consortium which is interested in looking at the relationship between copyright particularly and new emerging business models across not specifically sports but across the kind of creative industries and creative economy sector so a lot of work on music for example is, is going on and that particular work package or that particular research really was kick-started by the Murphy case which was a, a pretty famous case um, uh, here in the UK which went to the European Court of Justice which was looking at um, the pub landlady who imported a, a decoder and a subscription from Greece and, and began to show English Premier League football at three o'clock in the afternoon in their pub um, was then pursued by the English Premier League for breach of copyright. Um, and when the final European Court decision came, they, it ruled in her favour in terms of competition law. In other words, she was perfectly entitled to do what she did. But it ruled in favour of the Premier League in terms of copyright and that she was in fact infringing copyrighted material. So that became a kickstart for looking at an interest in how is the kind of digital environment changing the nature of copyright? Is the, is the notion of copyright or the IP regime, uh, how does it play out in sports? Um, is it a block to kind of innovation? Does it block new organisations or new media content platforms developing, etc.? So that was really the kind of context to, to the work and again based a lot on great access to some of the kind of key stakeholders at both national associations, football associations and also at UEFA. Um, I wanted to kind of map out kind of what's currently going on in that area and, uh, and here's the plug, there'll be a, a, there's a special issue on, on intellectual property and some of those debates in media culture and society coming out early in 2015 um, with some material on music in different areas and, and, and there'll be a piece around that comes out of the research in, in that issue. Fantastic. And what can we look forward to over the next year or so in terms of, I mean, in addition to that, what else are you working on? Uh, well, I'm completing a, work, I'm completing a project um, with um, a number of colleagues which has been on um, an unsporting issue but been on the UK Film Council which was the major uh, uh, body for film in the UK from 2000 till it was closed down 
by the coalition governments here in 20, uh, 2012, 2011-2012. Um, and so we're just at the latter stages of that project, which is really looking at the rise and fall of the UK Film Council. Uh, what does that tell you about film policy? An organisational study. Um, and we have a book which we're currently completing, which um, I'm probably behind on slightly in my commitment to it. Um, and so that's the major, over the next couple of months, is completing that book, which is due to appear uh, next year, uh, looking at um, the UK Film Council. What, that, what does that tell us about the, the limits and the opportunities of, in, of government intervention in, in film policy? So that's the kind of major... Uh, the major issue, the major project I've got to finish. And then I'm also looking to start up and develop a couple of projects. Um, and of course, you're visiting as well next year as we have the, the Rugby World Cup in 2015. Um, so the, you know, the advantage of sports is that there's never any shortage of things to do or, or new potential projects to look at. But like the sports journalists who tell you that you know, there's always the next event, there's always the next uh, uh, um, uh, major issue that's coming around the corner. So that's, my focus really is finishing the book at this stage. Excellent. Well, Raymond, thanks for joining me for the Media Sport Podcast Series. It's genuinely appreciated and I hope we can speak again soon. It's been a great pleasure, Brett. Thanks very much.